This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, I'm John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today, we're going to be talking about economics and the economy because my special guest is Elaine Buckburn. She is the chief economist at General Motors. She's got quite a background, too. I'm only going to touch on a little bit of it here. She was a deputy assistant secretary at the U.S. Treasury. She was a vice president at Morgan Stanley. She also worked for the uh, International Monetary Fund. That's just the, the brief highlights. But Elaine, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's my pleasure. And also joining us today, my colleague and friend, Mike Kalias from the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Mike. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Elaine, 2020. Wow. What a tough year. One of the toughest years I've ever had in my career, certainly. Even tougher, I think, than back during the Great Recession. So as GM's chief economist, I've got to ask you, what's your outlook for 2021? Let's look at both the U.S. economy and at the auto industry. So for starters, in terms of the U.S. economy overall, I am hopeful in an environment of tremendous uncertainty that we will start to see a turning point from this hard and increasingly restricted winter um, come early spring. And there will be a few drivers behind that. Uh, first of all would be the rollout of vaccines to at least the most vulnerable in our population. Secondly, by early spring, you know, even like late February, so not before the vernal equinox, you start having in the south and the west, it starts getting a little warmer and more things can happen outside. So that can reverse some of the restrictions of service sectors that it's happening right now. And third, President-elect Biden has said that he's going to um, ask the entire country to wear masks in public start uh, for three months. And you'd be, you know, about a month into that. And hopefully that would start having some impact on infection rates and allow some of the sensitive sectors that are being restricted right now to um, open up a bit more. And so I am optimistic that in terms of the economy, as vaccines are more widely rolled out, spring comes and helps combat an infection in and of itself, that we'll be able to see a gradual resumption of activity of those parts of the economy that have been held back. With respect to auto, auto has actually been strikingly resilient through the crisis. Um, and there have been a bunch of drivers, really demand in certain ways has been enhanced by the pandemic as people want safe transportation, among other things. Uh, and But I think that when economic growth normalizes, optimism is greater that demand will become stronger next year, more in line like we're seeing in this fourth quarter than the year overall. Elaine, I'm curious how, you, how much you guys look at uh, consumer behavior now in the pandemic and what might outlast that. Uh, I'm specifically thinking about commuting is probably an important one. You know, I think there seems to be no question that the number of commuter miles is going to go down. I mean, I haven't talked to anyone who works in an office who envisions going back to that office uh, five days a week like we like we used to. I mean, how does that dynamic, do you think, play into the future of, you know, not just car sales, but but uh, car ownership, the, the model in general, and, and our relationship to our vehicles. Have you guys, you know, looked at that? 
I think about it a lot, of course. <laughs> and it, it's more nuanced than that. I mean, first of all, in this period where still so many people are working from home, about 30% of the U.S. population is working ho from home, large percentages out of work, auto uh, gasoline demands only down about 10%. So think about that. Mileage can't, if that's a proxy for vehicles, mile traveled, even in this point where, you know, so many people are working from home, kids aren't in school, activities are down, mileage isn't down that much. So imagine a world where at least people who can work from home do so a couple days a week, for example. That's kind of the, the center of different people's expectations. People might commute fewer times a week. They might commute further, right? People may become more spread out. There's been a fair amount of movement from dense urban areas to suburbs during this period. People have moved, may decide to stay. Um, so on one hand, people might commute fewer times, but it's not clear that mileage or vehicle demand goes down. And most of people, people travel a lot for their commute, but their weekly trips include lots of other trips that are not work driven. So it's just a, a complex thing and it's not clear to what extent um, things will stay or people will want cars as safe transportation because of the sort of searing memory of the pandemic, or to what extent people will be rushing back to their well-ingrained past patterns of behavior, like loving cities and, and living in urban areas and um, being close together because of all of those things. It's, it's, there's a lot of ambiguity here. Elaine, there is ambiguity, but what are your thoughts on that? And by the way, th that stat that you just said about gasoline only usage only down 10%, I was not aware of it. That's a fascinating statistic. But what's your, th your, your thinking? People going out and buying cars right now who haven't owned them because they use public transportation. There was a reason they use public transportation, especially in cities, as you know, insurance can be extremely expensive. It can be hard or even a hassle to park. Don't you think they'll go back to that? Or do you think people will decide to hold on to cars? Right. Well, let's think for a second about the drivers of pandemic-induced demand, as I call it. So, right, it's people wanting safe transportation. They're either substituting from taxis and subways and buses to private transportation or planes and trains, wanting a big vehicle, take the family on vacation long distances. And there are households who couldn't spend money on vacations and concerts and restaurants right now and said, well, you know, I'll treat myself to a new vehicle. And there are city residents who want a vehicle either because they've moved to the suburbs and are more vehicle dependent, they need a first or a second vehicle, or they just want a way to get out. They want to be able to get out of the city on the weekends. Um, and then there's been, you know, the, the year of private recreation and people wanting to, to trailer boats and stuff. So how much of this stays? I mean, I think it's something big. There will be some people, right? There's a distribution of people and there are some people who are going to like rush back into restaurants and theaters and so on. And there are those people who could say, I really discovered I like hiking. And I'm going to want to do this, like even though I'm sitting and, and, and I, I had this horrible experience, say, living in New York City during this. And I, I always want a way out that's private because, you know, like the Great Depression uh, affected people for a long time. So I think that you've got a spectrum. Um, and I think that um, 
I think for some time, though, we see greater suburbanization. Um, households won't move quickly, and, and, and that can keep auto demand a little higher, or auto ownership at least, a little higher for some time. Um, and remember, lots of people who depended on ride sharing, that was part of their transportation. They might have owned a vehicle, but found ride sharing really convenient because they wanted to have a drink or they didn't want to park or something. So you, you've got this ongoing blend, and I think we're going to continue to have this blend. Um, but on cities, I'm a big believer in cities, and there's lots of economic research to show that the greatest amount of economic growth comes from our cities, and that how closely people sit at the workplace impacts like productivity. Um, and so while we've done really well during this period with work from home, I think that people will still be in offices to be productive, some of the time at least. Um, that that and um, that cities matter because something magical happens when people are together in person that increases productivity, innovation, and invention. Elaine, I'm curious what what kind of visibility you have into the stimulus that has gone into the economy and and how that played out. Was it more of a you know were people really buying new cars with stimulus money? Was it more of a used car uh, phenomenon? And then how important is any recovery we see in 2021? How contingent is that on further stimulus in the U.S.? So let's so it's a multi-part question. So let's start on, start with how people were buying vehicles. So if you think about stimulus, so people who were unemployed got larger benefits, um, and also there were the stimulus checks. So. First of all, stimulus and the stimulus checks capped out at certain incomes. And so for lower income households, especially ones that were unemployed, this was an opportunity to actually beef up savings a little bit. And it's probably helped people weather the months after that. Um, for higher income households, first of all, truly high income households didn't get stimulus checks. Right. Um, and those households in the sliver that may be from above the median to where it capped out didn't get checks. Well, that's a little, little unexpected bonus that might push people over the edge saying, hey, I could make a down payment and upgrade my car. Um, and we saw the big increase in auto demand really also happening at the used car market level. And used car prices went up and used car um, anecdotal evidence indicates used car uh, inventories have been super tight. So there were people at lower parts of the income distribution who probably were using those checks and going into the used car market. Um, in terms of your second question about how much stimulus matters, um, stimulus matters in lots of different ways. So think about if unemployment is higher through the winter and there's no incremental uh, you know, supplemental unemployment benefits. First of all, there's a compassionate side. There, are, there, there's more households in poverty. There are people going hungry, so that matters. But that also means that these people aren't going into their local businesses and spending enough money. That impacts those businesses and their ability to weather the coming tough few months. Um, and then you can have broader economic repercussions. Uh, state and local governments are having much higher expenditures, including their share of unemployment benefits and food stamps and uh, 
you know, your Medicaid and your Medicare. So supporting cities, that really matters. Um, so there are a variety of things that are just really important to weathering this. If you think about it, imagine you're a, a small business in retail or restaurants, you've made it this far, and all of a sudden it gets harder for a few months. Whether or not you're going to survive and cross this bridge that's, you know, three, two, three, six months long until your activity can really pick up, stimulus would make the difference. And we're at risk of losing viable businesses that might have a harder time restarting than surviving if you helped create that bridge. Elaine, uh, as you mentioned, uh, wealthier people did not get a stimulus check, but boy, they've made a killing on the on uh, the stock market, which is, I can't understand it. Maybe you can explain to me why we can have so many people unemployed, so much uncertainty in the stock market setting records, the NICE, the S&P, the NASDAQ, clearly more money is coming into the market because that's how markets grow. My question, I guess, is where's the money coming from and can it continue? Well, one of the issues is that interest rates have become so low that fixed income assets are less attractive. And so that does cause more money to be put into equity markets um, in a search for yield. And that's one of the things that has driven markets higher through this. Um, I think in recent weeks also, it's increased optimism about when things activity will pick up further in terms of good news, in terms of vaccine efficacy um, and the number of vaccines that look like they're likely to achieve approval and what that implies about the timing of vaccines, as well as I think um, gradual reduction in uncertainty around the presidential election. Elaine, you mentioned interest rates. I mean, it's been it's been such a prop for the you know it's propped up the industry for now more than a decade. The industry really hasn't needed to to operate in a in a rising interest rate environment, given how much stimulus already has gone into the economy. You know, there was the, the Trump tax cut uh, before before COVID. I'm not asking you for a formal you know projection, but long mid to long range, you know. Could you see interest rates being a, a potential headwind for the industry? So interest rates need to go up a fair amount to be a substantial headwind. And, and of course, the Fed is going to raise interest rates when it start. You know, it said that it's going to wait until in, uh, inflation has been above two percent for a while, moderately above before. Uh, starting to raise interest rates and the expectation that it'll be more of a, uh, an average of 2%. So that means that essentially we're waiting for economic activity to have picked up enough that inflation can pick up too. And so while interest rates could be a bit higher, they're not, I don't expect rapid ratcheting up of interest rates, but another gradual path of increase um, when they are ready. And that's going to be meeting higher levels of economic activity. So uh, those more powerful levels of economic activity could probably more than offset the interest rate. Elaine, as you talked about before, the stimulus really helped in 2020. A lot of money was put into the economy. Uh, Jerome Powell, the, the head of the Federal Reserve, is asking for a second stimulus program. What would you like to see from a Biden administration from that standpoint, especially as it applies to the automotive industry? So first of all, I'd like to see some stimulus passed this month. 
I'd like to see a bridge created, higher unemployment benefits for those low-income workers who may be yet again out of work due to increased restrictions on certain, uh, especially low-paid occupations. So I'd like to see something now. Um, in terms of next year, again, I think it's it's targeting vulnerable parts of the economy. Um, I think it's it's quite likely that um, stimulus could be somewhat broader next year. It might include, for example, infrastructure spending when interest rates are really low or um, other aspects like that. Some steps from on the climate and infrastructure, obviously with our ambitions around EV adoption and our sense that that is the future of auto, especially given the uh, science of climate change, we'd love to see whether in a stimulus vehicle or in another bill, important things that Biden has laid out like federal funding for charging infrastructure, um, R&D on batteries and other things to really help accelerate EV development and also use short-term stimulus, but also do things that are good for the long-term of the economy. But the key thing is uh, in terms of short-term stimulus, Fundings for schools to be able to open while COVID's still going on for materials. You know, again, small businesses. Is there anything marginal needed? Is there anything we need to do to still help workers out of work until um, things normalize more? And we are back to having restaurants and travel sectors that are more active, for example. Um, state and local governments, higher expenses during this period. Those are really core aspects of any legislation. And Elaine, what, what about on trade? Do you expect, um, I mean, we kind of have a trade war with China that's sort of, we're, I guess, press the pause button on that. I mean, do you, do you expect things to sort of go back to the way they were before? I mean, there was a turbulent four years under the Trump administration, but I know that, you know, uh, incoming President Biden has talked about, you know, real, you know, he wants to see domestic manufacturing. So, you know, what, how do you see trade policy under the new administration? So first of all, your starting point matters. So you're not in the same place. You know, um, four years ago, you were on the verge of completing the TPP. You were negotiating other agreements with Europe. Uh, now you're not there. And instead, you have this wide ranging set of tariffs on China. Now, Vice President Biden most recently said just last week that he plans to do a thorough evaluation of the phase one trade deal before making any decisions with respect to China. There are a few things we know. We know that he's stated that he believes that the tariffs have been harmful for the US economy, for manufacturing and for US jobs, not helpful. And um, we also know that he's gonna said he's gonna take a multilateral approach working with our allies to put pressure on China. So I think um, he's signaled that he's interested in lowering those tariffs it's good for the U.S. economy, but it might be part of some broader effort to bring them down. And I, I, I we clearly can't expect a um, stroke of the pen on day one, on inauguration day. But I think that the outlooks for tariffs have to be one of lower tariffs rather than current levels or had President Trump um, stayed in office for a second term, potentially get higher tariffs. Elaine, one of the things that's been interesting to me uh, with this whole pandemic is that the industry has been running on much lower inventory levels than it normally has. As a result of tight inventory, 
Car companies have not have to discount as much. Car dealerships have not had to discount as much. So the profit margins for the industry are up across the board. Retailers are setting record levels of profits. So I guess my question to you is, has the industry been running with too much inventory? Should this be the norm going forward? So inventories are really tight right now. I don't know that anyone would say that this is the optimal level. So inventories, for example, for trucks and full-size SUVs are industry-wide well, well lower than last year. But I think we've learned some lessons about how high inventories need to be and that maybe we thought they were higher than they need to be. Um, and inventories, of course, are really expensive for dealers because like the inventory costs when your average product costs about $30,000. That's a lot of that's a lot of cost just to maintain those inventories. So I think they've discovered that they can be thinner. I think they've also discovered that consumers are perhaps more willing to order a vehicle and have it made just to their specs um, than we previously thought. And in Europe, I believe the statistic is about half of auto purchases are made with a custom order and people wait for it. And we might never ever go there, but in this country, it's been more like 15%. And I think that balance will shift too. So is this the equilibrium, new equilibrium? No, but the new equilibrium might be somewhere in between. <laughs> Elaine, I'm, I'm curious, uh, sort of on John's question on the stock market related to that. I mean, you guys spend a lot of time thinking about uh, vehicle affordability, uh, just given the fact that, you know, prices since really since the downturn you know, vehicle prices have way outpaced inflation. There's not a whole lot of choice in that lower end of the the, the market um, entry level part of the showroom. I mean, it's hard to get a car for less than twenty thousand. I mean, do you, you know, is there concern that the industry broadly might be pricing out some some people that may have been able to get a car a decade ago? John, it's not true that actually vehicle prices have outstripped inflation. If you actually look at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you look at their auto price index, it's about flat. And once you control for content, it's actually down. Um, and by the same token, if you look at the share of vehicles that are sold in different uh, price categories and you adjust for inflation, it's essentially unchanged, including at the bottom of the market. But Elaine, as you know, uh, if you look at the percentage of Americans, percentage of the population that goes out and buys a new car, it's been on a downward slope for about 30 years right now. So, I, and I agree with what you're saying, adjusted for inflation, cars are a bargain. But when you look at the total dollars laid out, we've priced, the industry has priced so many people out of the market. Well, but one thing that happens is that vehicles are essentially more durable and, and better engineered and they have longer lives. And that means that the average vehicle has multiple owners in its lifetime. And um, some people are new car buyers. And of course, we'd like to see that be broader. But but part of the, finan the, the financial decision that many new car buyers make, too, is that they will be able to sell it to someone else who will want their vehicle when they want a new one. And that's part of the ecosystem. And that's part of what makes vehicles more affordable for some people who have lower budgets is that, that they may be used car buyers. And the used car market is important to the new car market. I guess we can't uh, end the conversation without talking about pickup trucks because it's so uh, important to General Motors and, and Detroit uh, broadly. I mean, what do you see there in terms of, I know there's uh, there's a bunch of different economic indicators that are tied to the health of the pickup truck market. You know, what do you, It's been super strong, even stronger in the pandemic than it was before. I mean, what do you see in terms of the outlook there? 
So I point to three drivers in the pandemic. Um, and then we can talk about some long drivers. But one is right at the beginning when interest rates went down and there were 0% down for, you know, 80 months sort of deals um, that drove a big increase in pickup buying because that was a buying opportunity for some buyers. Uh, and secondly, there have been two things that have happened over the course of time. We've talked some about the um, increased move to the suburbs. Well, there's been just a skyrocketing of building permits and new home construction. And there is a relation, historical relationship between heavy duty pickup demand and um, housing permits or, or starts or any of your new home construction variables. And um, that shift in new home sales, again, we've said it's uncertain, but that may persist for a while. Uh, and the third thing is that aspect of my private entertainment and people wanting pickups to haul things so they can go have private recreation, like on a boat or, or taking an RV or something. So that's a short-term thing. But long-term, we've seen a real shift in who's buying pickups. And pickups are increasingly not just a, a utility vehicle, but they are a personal style statement. And more and more pickups have been bought in suburbs versus in rural areas and by higher income, better educated households. So the pickup, now that we have the uh, crew cab and a, and trucks that don't just have one bench seat, but you could take your family to dinner or on vacation and also have a bed and have that style statement. The, the demand for pickups has just gotten much broader. Yeah, I would add to that too. It's amazing the amount of technology that you can get into in pickups. General Motors is going to be putting super crews in them where you can drive with your hands off the steering wheel. I mean, that, that would have been the the purview of high-end luxury cars in the past. I guess you could argue pickups have become uh, luxury, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up the conversation at this point. Elaine Buckberg, thanks so much for sharing your insights of what's going on with the economy. Very, very insightful. I want to thank you for that. Well, such a pleasure talking with you today, John, and you too, Mike. It was really interesting. Yeah, Mike, great having you on the show again, too. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was great. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.